Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. We're an intersectional activist organization working to build a society and economy run by the working class. A society that democratically meets the needs of the many, rather than creating profits for an elite few. Renegade Paradise is a news, commentary, and educational platform based on socialist analysis from activists on the ground here in the Lowcountry. By sharing our unique socialist perspective with the world, and by lifting up the voices of our allies and comrades, we are creating a space for folks on this part of the country looking to deepen their understanding of leftist politics, but might not know where to start. Members of the Charleston Democratic Socialists of America come from a broad, diverse set of backgrounds and tendencies within the spectrum of the left. What unites us is one common goal, and that goal is to build a different world, a better world. I'm CJ Bones, and joining me is Bennett and Nick, also from Charleston DSA. Say hey, guys. Hello. What's up? Today, we're going to briefly recap DSA's national convention, which was held in Atlanta earlier this month. Uh, Nick and myself were delegates representing the Charleston chapter, and Bennett was on the marshalling team. So, guys, uh, can you talk a little bit about your respective duties, both within the Charleston chapter and within the national convention? Sure. Yeah, I'll start. Um, So as a delegate to the convention, our role was to vote. And to vote, we wanted to make sure here, at least here in Charleston, I know other chapters had different methods of doing it, but we had several polls that we distributed to the chapter prior to the convention. So we kind of had a feel for how everyone felt about what was going to be voted on. So we tried to take that to the convention and, and vote according to the general will of our membership back here in Charleston. Um, my name is Bennett, uh, so you can match my voice to my responses. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't do that. Um, no, no, it's cool. <laughs> it's all good. Um, and I'm a co-chair now in Charleston DSA, and my role at the convention was on the marshalling team, um, ended up being a... Uh, ran one of the mics, one of the point mics, the dissent or disagree mic inside of the hall. And um, yeah, it was it was great. Sweet. Um, well, it's obviously not possible to go through each and every part of the convention. Uh, in this episode, we're not going to be able to talk to, talk about everything that was voted on, everything that was debated. Um, so we're going to take more of a broad view and dive in deeper. Uh, when necessary. Um, So part one of today's episode, we're going to discuss the convention as a whole. We'll set the scene, highlight a few existing caucuses and breakout discussions, and generally give our take on how things went. Part two of today's episode, we are going to focus on a few key votes that we found particularly important and interesting. Um, We'll also talk about a few votes that were not addressed in this year's convention due to lack of time. Uh, We hope by offering our analysis, we can contribute towards a good faith, comradely discussion on where the National Convention succeeded and what we can do to improve on the next convention. So stick around to hear our take, and if you attended the convention as a delegate or a marshal and want to share your experience or have a question about how you might get involved with the next DSA National Convention, email us at info at charlestondsa.org. You can also message us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and we will provide links in the description. I'm CJ Bones here with Bennett and Nick, and this is Renegade Paradise. Paradise, the 
official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm CJ Bones, here with fellow Charleston DSA comrades Bennett and Nick. Thank you all for listening. And Bennett and Nick, thank you very much for joining me today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Um, So a couple of months ago, uh, Nick and myself had the honor of being elected as uh, uh, delegates for the National Convention. Uh, Bennett served on the marshalling team and made sure the event ran safely and smoothly. Um, I myself had not been to the National Convention before and was not super familiar with the structures, uh, the people on the national level of the organization. Most of my work has been focused here on the chapter, like producing and recording and talking on this podcast. (laughs) Um, And honestly, I was a little intimidated by the entire thing. Um, But, I mean, this was a pretty serious task that the local chapter had entrusted all of us with. So uh, the three of us spent the days and weeks leading up to the convention, studying the various bylaws and resolutions up for debate, um, and learning about the folks running for the NPC. That's the National Political Committee, which is basically the governing body of the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, so, Nick Bennett, I'm going to turn the mic back over to y'all. Um, can you please talk about your personal experiences leading up to the convention um, and maybe share with our listeners your feelings and preparation leading up to that first day? Well, this is Nick. I'll go ahead and say that. <laughs> so I missed that last time. Hi, Nick. Hey, everybody. <laughs> um, you know, it was a lot to go over. There was a lot of resolutions. There were a lot of bylaws. There were a lot of people running for the NPC. And in order to kind of give everything that was up for voting, it's, you know, proper attention took a lot of time. And I know myself and <laughs> both of you guys too, and a, quite a few other people in the chapter spent a lot of time going over everything, reading, considering. And like I said, we had an internal chapter poll. Where we tried to kind of get a feel for what everyone wanted the chapter to vote for or against or was kind of ambivalent about. The polls were very helpful. Polls were extremely helpful. <laughs> we did all that kind of um, on our own time. And then before the actual convention, we got together and kind of went over the ones that were a little bit more contentious in person and talked about the different ways that we felt about it, why we voted the way we did, and tried to kind of come to some some kind of consensus. I think some of them, we once we talked about it, we realized we were, we were kind of either... We're more on the same page than not, mm-hmm. um, which I think was pretty helpful going into the convention. But oh, it was a, mm-hmm. it was a labor intensive preparation. It was very much a labor of love. Yeah, there were like 130 resolutions and bylaws, and then 60 something like that. There was hundreds of pages. 60 candidates. Six. No, I think it was like 30 candidates, but it might have seemed like oh, it might seem okay. like 60. Felt like 60. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because it was 60 candidates all, or 30 candidates all filling out a lot of questions, which were really Mm -hmm. helpful. And then they had Zoom calls as well. Yes. Which were also very helpful, but it was, it was a lot, a lot of work for sure leading up to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so as we talked about earlier, the uh, national convention is held once every two years. Um, and the thing that was interesting about this convention is recently, uh, DSA has swelled in numbers as folks have embraced socialism as a solution to the problems of white supremacist fascism, predatory capitalism, and the ineffectiveness of the Democratic Party at addressing either of the aforementioned issues. So now, with almost 60,000 dues-paying members spread over 200 chapters, this DSA convention was the largest to date and had about 1,000 delegates total. Um, and growing that fast creates a lot of challenges. Our, uh, our organization is made up of everybody from anarchists uh, to Marxist-Leninists, uh, left-leaning social democrats, union members, basically a mix of anyone that can call themselves leftist in the United States. That's a lot of different people, philosophies, and strategies all in one room. Now, uh, Nick and Bennett, can you all give me a broad sense of the coalitions, caucuses, and other groups present at the National Convention? Were there some sharp ideological divides or were the differences largely semantic? Um, I think there are a couple groups with very different divides, very different ideologies. The Libertarian Socialist Caucus is the anarchist wing. Um, I think that's pretty different. 
um, than say the social um, democracy or the bread and roses um, group. There's a ton of different groups that call themselves a caucus or don't call themselves a caucus, but of those groups, I want to say only five or six ran candidates and adopted resolutions or bylaws. Um, the real difference is, from my understanding, Bread and Roses is a Marxist caucus. Libertarian Socialists is a anarchist caucus. Build is not a caucus, but did have candidates and resolutions and is a locals, really highlighting locals and highlighting a local work group, as well as they have a lot of their own projects and things going on. And then uh, Collective Power Network and what's the one I'm forgetting? Socialist Majority? Socialist Majority. Um, those two, I'm sure that there are a lot of intricate differences if you ask the members, but definitely seem to have a lot of similarities uh, within them. I think I remember uh, North Star North uh, was Star, also there Star, and they were yep. handling, handing out uh, a bunch of literature. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there were a lot of, there's a lot of overlap between the different mm -hmm. caucuses and kind of slates that were running. Mm -hmm. um, I know Build and the Libertarian Socialist Caucus had a lot of overlap as far as their emphasis on the, the power of the locals. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think I probably echo what Bennett said, you know, there's, I'm sure there are differences, but some of the other caucuses like Collective Power Network or Socialist Majority or Bread and Roses, I mean, I'd be hard pressed to really draw a stark line between, well, this is that and that. Yeah. Um, right. It's all DSA. It's all DSA. End, which is nice. Yeah. yeah. It's a big tent organization at mm -hmm. the end of the day. So we have a lot of different ideologies and a lot of different strategies at play, mm -hmm. you know through these national or local caucuses or even at the chapter level. But at the end of the day, we're all on the same page. Mm -hmm. And we all kind of couch it within um, similar language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're, we're all comrades at the end of the day. Yeah. And one thing that I really liked is there were a lot of different slates and a lot of different idea ideologies coming into this convention. And when we left the convention, the NPC represents mm -hmm. pretty much every single caucus. And so, every region of the country, too, yeah, which is this nice. It's an extremely diverse and geographically and ideologically diverse mm -hmm. NPC. Yeah, and, I don't remember any one uh, brand or one chapter or one caucus really dominating yeah. the NPC, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that if you look at the who is in the new NPC... What you see is the big tent of DSA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so ultimately, I think what we're all saying is that the purpose of the convention is to sort of hash out all of our differences as best we can, make decisions and solidify them into the official DSA constitution and bylaws. And uh, like we were saying earlier, uh, delegates must also elect a new national political com uh, committee uh, which is a 16-member board that will govern uh, DSA for the next two years, and, and over 30 candidates ran. So um, that gives you an idea of like how many folks were represented, how many uh, candidates we had to review, and generally the process of kind of uh, hammering all of that out. The debates and voting mostly took place in a giant ballroom at the Westin in downtown Atlanta, which is one of the only unionized hotels in the city. Um, outside of the ballroom, delegates were mingling and networking, indie leftist publishers had books for sale, uh, pamphlets were being given out, uh, each DSA chapter got a free copy of the book No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age uh, by Jane McAlvey. Uh, I picked up a copy of Das Kapital uh, Illustrated for my own collection because... It's a big book, and, <laughs> and I like I, I I like pictures. I draw pretty pictures, and I like pretty pictures. Is so. it all three volumes, or is it just volume one? I believe it's all three volumes. Oh my wow. gosh! Yeah. All right. Um, that's like gonna be that's gonna be a thick graphic novel. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there were a lot of uh, comrades hang, uh, handing out flyers promoting after parties and bylaw amendments. 
A great deal of informal lobbying happened just outside the main ballroom with groups handing out circulars like vote for Resolution 31 or vote for this or that NPC slate. Um, so there was a lot of like kind of old school politicking going on there too. Like it wasn't just everybody sequestering themselves uh, in the main ballroom. Um, so Nick Bennett, did you pick up any interesting books from the event? Uh, anything you might want to recommend to our listeners so far? You know, I, I, I didn't pick up <laughs> really many books at the, the convention, but I will go back to what you said. The No Shortcuts book, it's, is an amazing book. And if people haven't picked that up and read it, they really should. It's an incredible way of kind of wrapping your mind around what we do, which is organizing. Right. Um, but to be honest, I went to the DS or not the DSA, the Socialism 2019 convention in Chicago, like a couple weeks before, and really went hard on the bookstore there. <laughs> your, so, your budget was out, man. I was I was broke by the time <laughs> I got to the convention. Um, but that being said, I mean, there were several books um, that I'm reading right now. Um, Ian Angus is facing the Anthropocene, which is a truly terrifying mm. look at the way that capitalism is destroying our planet. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I can't say I recommend it, but it's an interesting read. It's a terrifying read. And um, <laughs> Timothy Faust. Um, mm. who y'all probably remember came yeah. down to Charleston two years ago and did a talk at the ILA hall on yeah. healthcare. Yeah. He, and he also hosts, uh, the heavy medical yeah, podcast, which is fun. Yeah. It's a fun, it's a fun, it's a fun show. Yeah. Um, but he just wrote a book called health justice now, which I'm reading and is an amazing breakdown nice. of the healthcare industry. Mm. And for someone who doesn't really know a lot about it, it has been enlightening and truly depressing. And if we, Mm -hmm. Everyone should read it, and then we should go out and win Medicare for all yeah. and smash the private insurance industry. Hell yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I imagine that it shares in, in detail um, just the amount of waste, the amount of overhead, uh, that yeah. sort of... It does, and yeah. there's a lot of personal stories in it, not from him, but like stories he's sharing from when he was traveling around the country, Yeah, and they are gut-wrenching. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't pick up any books but i picked up a lot of ideas for books that i have now started to read um currently reading Reckham free american dream Noam chomsky's uh last book and had a conversation with someone there about it and they said that i should really pick it up and i'm working through that and then uh a few of us in charleston dsa myself included are working through capital um only volume one, though, at this point. Though, someone recently told me volume two is like the EP from your favorite band that <laughs> no one talks about, that you've like discovered the the B-side in the record store, and yeah. that really all the good secret stuff's in volume two. So yeah. after volume one, we might have to do volume two. Yeah. Um, but yeah, m most of my time was not a lot of mingling, right. doing a lot of marshalling uh, work and de-escalation. Um, and for folks that might not know what that means, basically being a really, really nice bouncer at a club <laughs> and making sure everyone is safe and no one is, um, you know, if they're agitated, they have someone to talk to or um, making sure that there aren't any right-wing groups outside of the hotel or in the premises bothering DSA folks or, God forbid, trying to harm anyone. Right. Um, and so I, I did scan the tables, but I just did not, unfortunately, have time to uh, yeah. to get to them. There were some really good tables out there. Haymarket Books mm -hmm. had a table out there, and they had a really sweet deal for DSA chapters to do their political education working groups. Mm. Like, there was some discount that they could get. Labor Notes was there. Mm -hmm. um, Labor Notes has a lot of really good literature on the labor movement, mm -hmm. current labor struggles, and also really the mechanics and the philosophy and the the workflow mm -hmm. of union organizing. And they were there. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And that was fantastic. Yeah. And Jacobin was there, obviously. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, Boshkar was selling his new book, A Socialist Manifesto, and they had copies of some old back issues of Jacobin for people to yeah. take as well. Yep. Um, 
I like how you brought up uh I like how you brought up labor notes um and and the fact that uh they went so far into in, into the nuts and bolts because I feel like you know a, a lot of uh union organizing and union experience is like something that fewer and fewer people uh, mm-hmm. have expertise in. Yeah. So there's a lot of energy about wanting to build unions in DSA and wanting to like uh be a part of unions, support unions, promote unions, but the actual expertise to make that happen, I mean, that's that's kind of hard to find these days. I mean, yeah. especially in South Carolina where oh, yeah. we have under 3% union representation, literally the lowest in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, after, so moving on to after the debates, um, and voting, there were breakout sessions, there were after parties, and, uh, in my opinion, uh, that was probably one of the most useful and fun parts of the entire convention. This was the part where comrades got to meet each other face-to-face and really get to know each other beyond the usual uh, online interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, and for chapters in smaller towns and rural areas in the South, this is especially critical because we don't generally have, except for some spots, uh, uh, Atlanta's uh, DSA chapters, pretty pretty decent size. Um, a lot of Southern chapters are kind of small and don't have a large uh, active uh pool of engaged members within the city limits. So sometimes it's more important to get more involved in regional organizing as opposed to like, you know, we we ha- we are here, we are in Charleston, we are only in Charleston, and we don't ever go out beyond Charleston, for example, you know. Um, I think it's important for uh, smaller uh, southern chapters to really uh, lean into regional organizing and, and just meeting with each other and talking to each other. Um, it might be useful to uh, talk with uh, trusted comrades and other chapters who have had their own successes, their own struggles, and hopefully we can learn from each other. Um, so we're going to discuss that and also take a deeper dive into some key votes that happened through the, uh, throughout the weekend of the convention. Uh, so please stick around. I'm CJ Bones here with Charleston uh, DSA comrades uh, Nick and Bennett, and this is Renegade Paradise. You're listening to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm CJ Bones, here with fellow Charleston DSA comrades Bennett and Nick. Thanks for listening. So we've been talking about the recent National DSA Convention in fairly broad terms, Um, but now I want to take a slightly deeper dive into a few key votes. I think it's fair to say that there were a lot of intelligent, sometimes opinionated uh, discussions uh, and comrades who were uh, ready to make the case uh, either for or against various bylaw changes and uh, for new resolutions. Um, the convention debates themselves were, in my opinion, sometimes uh, sometimes pretty legalistic and hard to understand. Um, other times they were a lot more like spirited, they were a lot more lively, and the language was not quite so complicated. Um, and sometimes it got a little heated, sometimes it got a little emotional. Um, uh, and I want to talk to you all a little bit about uh, kind of the format of the debates. Um, so, uh, Nick Bennett, I think y'all are pretty familiar with Robert's Rules of Order. I think, Nick, you actually brought a thick reference book <laughs> <laughs> entirely devoted to uh, uh, Robert's Rules uh, to the floor of the convention just to have handy. Um, can y'all briefly discuss what Robert's Rules of Order are and how they were used during the debates and voting process? Robert's Rules of Order is basically the kind of go-to guide for parliamentary procedures. So it's a way of holding big meetings like what we were doing and have them in a pretty standardized, organized way. Um, 
it is very legalistic and mm -hmm. it can be kind of hard to wrap your mind around. And I will be completely honest, this was the first time that I really engaged with it on any significant level. Right. It was a daunting task to kind of get started with. Yeah. yeah. Um, and National had a paid parliamentarian yeah. that they had on stage to, that I assume just memorized and knows Robert's rules back and forth and would oftentimes go to that person on stage to answer a question that was, I mean, people were pulling out their Robert's rules books on the floor and busting them open and, go into the mics with them. So right, they needed yeah. someone really, really familiar with the text. Yeah. I think it's probably pretty fair to say that since this was, since our membership is growing and, and we had so many people at this convention, probably a lot of folks were in a similar situation where they were not incredibly familiar with Robert's rules. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of the larger chapters who have larger meetings, you know, mm -hmm. kind of... A couple hundred people showing yeah, up. Yeah, by, mm -hmm. by necessity, they have to use some kind of procedure. Right. And Robert Rules of Order is kind of the, the go-to guide. So I think a lot of people um, from some of the bigger chapters yeah. came into this knowing kind of how this was going to work. Sure. Um, you know, I don't think that there was a better way of doing it, but yeah, you know, it was kind of a daunting task to kind of come yeah. into there. I mean, I'd, I'd be... Pretty hard, uh, sorry, pretty hard pressed to find um, a better way to manage it. Um, I did start to see some limitations of Robert's rules pretty quickly. Um, I mean, in a room of a thousand people, anybody can hop up to the, uh, hop up to the microphone at any point uh, to make a point of personal privilege or a point of inquiry. So inevitably, this leads to a lot of interruptions and votes that should take you'd think only a few minutes uh, become hour-long, like, st struggles, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember a comrade uh, even mentioned that too much time was being spent, uh, quote, voting on whether or not we're going to vote about voting, unquote. <laughs> and I'm like, brother, you nailed it. <laughs> yeah. There was, yeah, there was a lot of that. And I think, obviously, like, the first day was was rough. Yeah. Because I think... You know, and it, even leading up to it on the discussion boards and stuff about oh, yeah. Borda versus whatever one we ended up going with. I can't remember uh, now. Single, single transferable vote, yeah. I yeah. think. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of kind of like... <laughs> Nitty gritty voting stuff. Yeah, I think, and I, you know, I've said this before and I'll say it again here, is I think, you know, DSA is a power to be reckoned with already. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing that people are underestimating us on is that we are raising and getting an entire generation of socialist organizers who are going to be experts mm -hmm. at parliamentary procedure. Yeah. Which yeah. is City a force Council. to be reckoned. Yeah, it's gonna be a yeah. force to be reckoned with. Yeah. If if you know uh if you know Robert's rules, then you definitely uh have some ability to mm -hmm. to control the conversation. Marks mm -hmm. in one hand, Robert's rules in the other. <laughs> yeah. Double fisting. Um yeah. <laughs> so um with regard to the uh, resolutions, the bylaws uh, that we were talking about, uh, a few resolutions like support for the Green New Deal, the decriminalization of sex work, uh, universal free childcare, support, uh, support for open borders, uh, stuff like that, they did pass with basically unanimous support. Um, but there were that wasn't always the case. There are a few controversial votes uh, that I would like to discuss with y'all. So the first one I want to talk about is Resolution 48, which was known as the Candidate Litmus Test. Uh, this resolution stated that DSA would only support candidates that specifically called themselves Democratic Socialists and supported things like Medicare for All, union building, and workplace, workplace uh, democracy efforts, tuition-free college, like basically everything that I had just talked about that mm -hmm. got unanimous. Uh, voting. Um, so this motion failed, uh, which surprised me personally, as these are all things that we as an organization have rallied around in the past and have invested a lot of time and energy into working on. So uh, what do y'all make of the failure of this resolution? Uh, what do y'all, what do y'all um, should, uh, what do y'all think about resolution 48? Should we be willing to expand the types of candidates we endorse uh, or should we really take the lead on this and expect these candidates to fight just as hard for the things that I had previously mentioned um, as as we are today? And I have a follow-up question to that. Um, 
Uh, Resolution 15 specifically stated that Democratic Socialists of America will not endorse another Democratic primary presidential candidate uh, should Bernie Sanders not win. Uh, that vote ended up passing, but I was somewhat surprised uh, at the amount of votes against that resolution. So what do you make of that, and does it tie into the failure of Resolution 48? Yeah, so uh, I'll take the first about the Resolution 15 first, because I think it really the only folks, and this is the resolution that, that DSA that, will only support Bernie Sanders. Correct. The... In that past, the folks that I heard against that were thinking about a future scenario in which Bernie Sanders was the vice president and in which Elizabeth Warren was the presidential candidate and Bernie was vice president. And then what does DSA do in that scenario? Or what if Bernie endorses someone? Or what if a third party comes? All of these different future scenarios basically saying they didn't want to limit DSA's national political power moving forward um, in the presidential primaries. Um, and so I think it passed because folk in DSA will really only support a socialist candidate that is specifically socialist. Um, to the litmus test, the... Dissenters to that, the folks that are speaking against it, really spoke to a few of the questions as well as, I think at that point, how hard it would be to come back to the questions if in another convention, if it was in a couple years, um, that type of stuff, as well as how, who, I think people, folks were worried that if the litmus test became a thing that it would just be endless debates as to what questions would go on and what questions would be taken off of it. You think that that, um, that if that passed, that would kind of become a thing that DSA would suddenly have to reckon with every election cycle? Yes, and it, oh, yeah, and okay. it might become a thing that is would be hard to deal with and... Robert's rules of order would come back to haunt the <laughs> litmus test at the next convention, taking off and putting on different questions depending on what topics are are, are prevalent at the time in DSA. I, I am just, again, in this conversation, I didn't vote and I wasn't a voting member. Um, I was on the dissenting microphone as a marshal organizing folks who could come up and talk. So I do remember a lot of those dissenting remarks better. Right. So you said it was right there, yeah. Right. And the litmus test was specifically about whether or not national DSA would endorse and how it would go about endorsing various candidates for public office. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's important that we support candidates that support our ideas. And, yeah, I think it's a really complicated question. And, you know, I think, pretty sure that, well, I, I did vote against the litmus test. And, you know, I, I think there's a really kind of much deeper conversation to have about, about that. Right. Ultimately, though, I think that we need to be... We need to understand that maybe DSA members who are running on local elections who could use the support of national mm -hmm. might not necessarily be able to vocally support various things. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds like a terrible answer and I'm sure people are going to, yeah, people are going to hear that and be like, oh no, you know, yeah. Right. But I think, you know, realistically, like we have someone running for school board here, you know, maybe... Some of the national priorities aren't particularly relevant mm -hmm. to that that um, school board race. That school board race in Charleston. Now they can be absolutely supportive of it, but maybe mm -hmm. putting it on their campaign thing, mm -hmm. you know, maybe that hurts them. Right. I, and I, I know I think it's you know kind of a case by case thing. So yeah. you know I think it was a it is I think it's a really <clears throat> good debate for us to have. Um, but yeah, I wasn't in favor of like a national litmus test, I suppose. Right. And as far as the, you know, 
won't endorse anybody else but Sanders. I think a lot of people in DSA have a very strong fondness for Mm -hmm. um, Sanders. You know, he kind of, not obviously by himself, but he definitely played a large role in the rehabilitation of the word socialist. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, one of the reasons that DSA has grown so much is obviously because of our awesome organizing, but it definitely has something to thank Bernie Sanders for. Yeah, for sure. You know, a lot of people join because of these big electoral races mm-hmm. that just have had the word socialist or democratic socialist in them, you know? So I think Sanders kind of occupies a kind of a special place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I understand the criticisms of like, what if he's the vice president? What are we going to do? Well, yeah. you know, on a local level, chapters are still able to do whatever they want. And, but on a national level, you know, I think that we shouldn't endorse, you know, someone, (laughs) I mean, Elizabeth Warren on the, on the national stage, you know, chapters and individuals can do whatever they want, but on on a more, you know, on the national stage, I think it's important that socialist organization supports a socialist presidential candidate. Right. And we are developing a local litmus test of sorts we for are. our mayoral election coming up yeah. in mm. North Charleston and Charleston. So mm-hmm. we're All not right. anti-litmus tests. No, no, no. But we're... By any means. But. How about pro-localized litmus tests? Yes. Like, yeah. you know, I'm not going to... I hope we're not going to support anybody that isn't, you know, against or isn't uh, in favor of making ICE's job a whole hell of a lot harder here right. in Charleston. Yeah, yeah. For sure. You know, so. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's that's uh, definitely a, almost, that's a discussion that could be almost its own episode or, or two, <laughs> honestly. Mm-hmm. Um. But uh, thank you all for, like, you know, taking a deeper dive and, and, and being pretty succinct almost. Um. So let's keep going. Resolution number nine stated that DSA would create a national working group dedicated to anti-fascist organizing. It would provide teaching tools and resources on how to protect our communities from violent and often deadly fascist attacks. Uh, It would also provide uh, resources for enhancing meeting security and a secure online platform for information sharing. So although the resolution uh, although that resolution passed the vote was extremely close uh, a certain comrade even tried to reintroduce it the second uh, day of debates uh, which failed um, so comrades against the resolution suggested that it put the organization at unnecessary risk but comrades who supported the resolution made it clear that fascists do not care if you're actively participating in anti-fascist work or not If you're not a straight white male with blindly nationalist tendencies and a proclivity for violence, they see you as a threat. Um, So, guys, what does it say about the state of DSA and of organizing in 2019 generally that this vote for resolution number nine was was so close? Uh, Are there better ways for DSA to handle anti-fascist organizing uh, rather than creating a national level working group? I think there are a lot of different ways to be anti-fascist. And I think some of the contention around the anti-fascist national working group was maybe a little confusion on our part, not mm-hmm. the the royal our part, like the whole convention. The, mm-hmm. the delegate yeah. body. Yeah. yeah. That Antifa and an anti-fascist working group are not... Antifa this, with a capital A. Yeah, yeah. Like, we are all anti-fascist Right? Right. We're, but <laughs> we're all anti-fascists. Mm-hmm. We're all anti-fascists. And whether or not we get in a black block and, you know, do that kind of work, you know, we are still anti-fascists. Um, I met a guy whose son is named Black Block recently. That's amazing. His last wow. name is B-O-O-C-H, and he named his son Black. Ah, oh, that's so good. That's awesome. Anyway, sorry. Aside, but related. <laughs> But I think at the end of the day, DSA is an anti-fascist organization. And it makes good sense for us to have an anti-fascist national working group. Right. Whether that, what that working group ends up doing 
I think is an important conversation that we're going to be to be having, obviously. But we are open and active socialists. And like Bones was saying, you know, if you don't meet the kind of, you know, very bland criteria for these, you know, right-wing assholes, mm-hmm. you know, we're all targets. Yeah. Whether or not we have this working group or not, you know, comrades across the country are being doxxed, they're being targeted, they're being attacked physically, mm-hmm. and we need to stand together and show support. And maybe not, maybe the national, not, maybe the national working group is not the best way to do that, but it is one way that we can do that, and it is an easy way for us to start building the capacity as an anti-fascist or- organization. Right. Yeah, I, I definitely think the contention came from not a place of not agreeing with the work, but a place of worrying that it would put certain comrades or the organization in a in an unsafe place. Right. And how to balance the national working group with local groups and safety on all those levels. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but like, again, at the end of the day, we're all targets. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Might as well embrace it that we're anti-fascists and be proud about yeah. it. Yeah, definitely. Fuck fascism. Oh, fuck fascists. All you fascists bound to lose. All right. Um, so let's talk about bylaw change number two. Uh, national stipends to chapters, and this was also known as Pass the Hat. Um, the bylaw change uh, proposed that the national organization would pay a standard monthly or quarterly stipend to each chapter with a valid bank account and up-to-date membership information. Uh, the chapter would be able to use their stipends for just about anything they want, with the exception of electoral contributions uh, or expenditures uh, implicating campaign finance requirements. Um, the standard stipend amounted to about $100 a month if paid monthly or $300 uh, per quarter if paid quarterly. The total estimated cost ended up being um, almost $215,000, which is not a small portion of the uh, overall annual budget for DSA. Uh, this resolution ended up failing. Um, arguments for the bylaw change pointed out, rightfully so, that it's much harder to organize in smaller cities and in certain areas of the country. And we here in Charleston DSA know that pretty well. It's it's just more work. There are fewer bodies uh, and, and there's more work that needs to be done. So it's just, just kind of how it happens down here. Um, uh, arguments against the bylaw change uh, cited the overall cost, the fact that many chapters still need to get bank accounts set up, uh, and the fact that each chapter received the same stipend amount regardless of size, although there did appear to be uh, language in the bylaw change uh, to give the National Political Mini, uh, Committee power to increase the stipend if needed, um, but it was not very specific. It was literally one line. Um, so, Nick Bennett, what are your uh, what are your opinions on that bylaw change, and why do you think it failed to pass? Is DSA better served by a stronger uh, NPC or by more robust local chapters? And I guess the second part of that question is a little more broad um, and beyond this specific bylaw change. Yeah, I mean, to what you just said, you know, I think that DSA needs both. We need strong, vibrant, and creative chapters, and we need a strong organization at the national level. Um because we have a lot of different strategies. We are fighting an uphill battle and we need to have the creativity that and flexibility that locals provide, but we also need to be able to bring the weight of a national organization to these fights as well. Um, as far as past the hat is concerned, you know, I think that national does need to kind of increase its support for locals. Financially? Um, well, yeah. financially, so there mm-hmm. is the thing within DSA currently of due sharing. Mm-hmm. So when you pay monthly dues, 20% of the monthly dues generated by a chapter's geographic area go back to the chapter mm-hmm. if they have a bank account, mm-hmm. which is kind of the sticking point on past the hat as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if Charleston DSA had a bank account, which we will shortly, hopefully, Woo. yeah, um, we should be able to generate pretty much the equivalent amount every month from our dues-paying members. So 
the mechanism is is there. And it is hard to get a bank account because some places allow you, some credit unions will allow you to set up a bank account for an organization without being like a nonprofit in South Carolina. I don't believe that's the case. So you have to incorporate and then you have to get a bank account. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still, either way, there's a lot of kind of problems with the kind of financial distribution of assets down to the local level. I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea, but I didn't think that past the hat kind of was the way to do it. Yeah, I think that in the next convention, the 2021, there will be a more refined, specific version of this. Something that speaks to like different chapters of different Mm -hmm. sizes. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Like maybe has some language that says if you're in this type of state, this mm-hmm. is this is what'll happen if you're in this type of state. This is yeah. what'll happen because just everything is yeah. Everything is the state level. How the different chapters had different number of delegates that went. If you had X number of members dues paying in good standing, then you got X number of delegates that represented that. I think that could be one way to figure out the size of the chapter and the money allocation. But as we saw, I mean, this is not an issue that's going to go away. It's definitely a major part of the future function of DSA and the balance between a large national organizational body that represents all of the chapters or a local, very decentralized with the chapters keeping money. I mean, there were a couple of different versions of this that I saw that had, you know, close, not 100% of dues kept by chapters, but I mean, a different variance of percentages kept by chapters. And I just, I don't see this as something that goes away or necessarily needs to go away. Um, just, I think there will be re- refined versions of this right. in the next year, couple of years. What I, what I would really like to see on a practical level is some kind of training for the locals on fundraising. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, we are community-based organizations. And when we win fights, it's because we have connected to our community in a very real way. So we should have the tools and resources to be able to fundraise from our community so we can generate the kind of resources that that we do need so that we can operate. And I realize Mm -hmm. it's very hard in chapters. And I know Charleston's a difficult place to do this. And I know there are other chapters who have it much harder than we do because right. Charleston's a, is a, a quote unquote big city, but you know, it doesn't feel like it, you know? So. Exactly. Um, so let's uh, wrap up the deep dive with, uh, let me look at my notes here. One second. There we go. Um, Let's wrap up this deep dive by talking about Resolution 68, uh, known as Operation Dixie. Um, We actually ran out of time to debate and vote on this, but basically this resolution proposed that DSA should prioritize Southern chapters in providing organizational support uh, for new labor organizing, and all chapters in the South should be provided with ongoing DSA staff support in any labor organizing efforts. Um, the resolution also stated that all Southern chapters should be provided with the opportunity for in-depth training on new uh, organizing by August of 2020. Um, so despite the problematic name of the resolution, I mean, it's... Yeah, let's stop calling this region Dixie, it's, please. It's a loaded, it's a loaded word. Yeah. <laughs> if you... I still think that this was a pretty big missed opportunity, personally. Um we spent a lot of time throughout this entire convention, uh, as the comrade mentioned earlier in the convention, uh, voting on whether or not we're going to vote about voting. So that shifted the schedule like by many hours. Um, so what we actually should have been spending that time on, I think, is voting on res- resolutions and bylaw changes that would empower new DSA chapters throughout so-called red states. Um, I've said this before, and I've said this in other episodes, we are on the front lines of building a socialist economy and a socialist society. And I feel like there was a lot of agreement on that, uh, that point within the convention, but after, uh, especially after talking to, uh, delegates, not just in, uh, the, uh, uh, Southern caucus, uh, but 
you know, I've, I've talked to folks uh, all over the place. I talked to uh, folks from New York. I talk, uh, talked to folks from uh, North Dakota. Uh, I talked to folks from the West Coast. Like, that agreement is there. Um, but we're going to lose a lot of that opportunity to grow and strengthen our Southern chapters uh, in future conventions if we don't work with some level of speed and efficiency instead of just talking over each other. And, and um, I hope that we can keep that in mind in our next convention and maybe we'll get a new version of a Resolution 68 going um, in 2021. Who knows? Um, but anyway, I digress. My question to y'all, Nick and Bennett, is what is your opinion on Resolution 68? Should Southern chapters work harder to put this at the top of the agenda for the next convention? And are there actions we can take in the meantime? Well, I think there's a, a, a good debate to be had about whether organizing in the South is truly a unique thing. I'm inclined to say yes, but I think that there are plenty of people out there who would make a good argument about it not being. I, I do agree. It's a missed opportunity that we didn't have this debate at the convention. Um, I hope that over the next two years that Southern chapters can kind of make what would the, what this resolution would have done um, kind of do it on our own. So I think that there's some movement on that front already. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see where we go with organizing the South. Yeah, I agree. Um, just got back from a trip to Chicago and I mean, I've heard the arguments on both sides, whether or not organizing in the South truly is different. And there are just certain uniquely Southern challenges, particularly around union unions and yep. right to work states. Um, and with manufacturing moving to the South so much, it really changes things, I think, especially here in South Carolina around, around unionizing really is specifically what I can really pinpoint. Um, but the Southern caucus had a great meeting and, I think there's different ways to move forward with this resolution. And again, I, I think the next convention there will be a nut. This will hopefully be brought up again. Right. Uh, yeah. Here's hoping. Um, so we spent a good part of the episode so far talking about the challenges surrounding the debates and voting process. But when you, Zoom out just a little bit. I think I could say and, and you know, chime in with what you all think. I think the debates ran fairly smoothly considering um, that you had a such a mix of differently minded socialists from all 50 states uh, trying to cobble together our future. Um, the frustrations sometimes caused by debate uh, luckily were relieved by some really great guest speakers and panelists. My favorite uh, among these speakers was Sarah Nelson of the Flight Attendants Union. Uh, you might remember Nelson from her role in pressuring uh, the government during the shutdown last year by rallying air traffic controllers to strike. Um, Nelson delivered an awesome speech praising, quote, our Democratic Socialist heroes Eugene Debs and Lucy Parsons. And called to uh, and called for a return to the quote militant rank and file uh, organizing approach that built the early labor movement unquote. Uh, Nelson also discussed the strike of washerwomen in uh, 1880s Atlanta, former slaves who refused to settle for uh, the incredibly low pay at the time. Um, she uh, also said, quote, "The law was not on the side of these women. Uh, the economy wasn't." Uh, but they were smart, creative, and fearless. Um, Nelson related how, uh, as a young flight attendant, she realized the power that uh, the airline had over her and of her coworkers. Uh, so for that reason, she joined a union. Uh, she talked about uh, the meaning of solidarity uh, by joining a union and the strength of union members actively organizing to improve their working conditions. Um, there were um, 
there was a moment in the speech uh, towards the end where she asked everybody to stand uh, and turn to their neighbor. So it was kind of kind of had like a church feel at the at the uh, at that moment, um, and uh, say to each other, "I've got your back." And then we all started chanting, "I've got your back," and that was pretty cool. Nice. I liked that part a lot. It's powerful. Um, it was it was really um a in, it was a really strong moment and I can't really capture that through the podcast uh through this microphone but um it's on the internet. <laughs> it you is check on the it internet. out. Oh, yeah. it's, <laughs> video's amazing. Video's. Yeah. Um and uh I think you can find the entirety of the convention uh on the DSA website. Um so uh, if you're looking for it, just Google 29 Convention A World to Win. Uh, there were a lot of other speakers that uh, also stepped up to the microphone, including uh, South Fulton, Georgia City Council member uh, Khalid Kamau, uh, Cecily uh, Miart Cruz, uh, Vice President of the United Teachers Los Angeles uh, slash NEA, uh, and uh, Linda Sarsour, uh, Executive Director of the Arab American Association of New York. Um, so... Guys, what were your thoughts of the speakers throughout the weekend, and were there any moments that really, really stuck out to you? So, unfortunately, I was outside marshalling during all of the speakers. Didn't get to see any of them live, but I have gone back and watched some of the videos and um, was also outside after Miss um, Nelson spoke, and people were in tears coming out of the conference room. So I was outside doing bad badge checks and that type of stuff right outside when people were entering and folks were streaming out after we had a little break and folks were in tears after her. So I, I went back and checked out her video and it really is really awesome. Yeah, kind of the same sort of thing. I That weekend was grueling and unfortunately during a lot of the talks, I was very busy taking a nap <laughs> or getting a much deserved drink. Yeah. Um, but Sarah Nelson brought the house down she and, did. you know, uh, I was one of those people leaving the convention hall after her, you know, a little teared up. I mean, that was some powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. And, um, yeah, uh, council member, uh, Colleen was, um, amazing. It's so cool to see someone in elected office in a city as large as Atlanta who who's a DSA member who is an open socialist mm -hmm. in the south in like the biggest city in the south one of the biggest cities in the country felt good that was awesome to see yeah. that was awesome to see and also to anyone who's like oh you know you know you'll never win in the south or anything all i got to say is fuck you we already are yeah and we're going to keep winning um, so the convention ended on Sunday afternoon, uh, to some dramatic sing-alongs, uh, delegates joined in singing the Internationale and Solidarity Forever. Um, at that point in the debates, I, uh, this is just after we ran out of time. We didn't get to get, uh, we didn't get to, uh, Resolution 68, Operation Dixie. I was a little bummed out, but the sing-alongs just wiped that pretty much off the slate. <laughs> Not Socialist. singing nine to five in the South is a real crime. That was a missed opportunity. Real crime. Uh, Having it in <laughs> in Atlanta, Georgia and not singing Dolly Parton is that a is, major miss. That is yeah. a very good point. Matter of fact, that should be a resolution. Oh, you know, nice. Next going on. We're just going yeah. to start screaming it. Yeah. <laughs> Get some folks from the Southern Caucus to start just yelling that out. But socialists oh. should always sing. Every meeting should have singing. Yeah. If if we can't dance, it's it's not my rev uh, revolution, right? That's how we're tying up this podcast today, right? We're gonna all get together and sing. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm pretty parched, but uh, we've got uh, we got a very strong uh, audio <laughs> clip of the internationale that always closes out. So oh, there's that do. at least, and we don't even have to do the hard part. I uh, think that one other thing I want to talk about before we roll is uh, the Southern Caucus meetup on Saturday night uh, during the convention. So there are about 20 to 30 of us that split off into one of the meeting groups and shared stories, challenges, and ideas about organizing here in the South. Um, I was personally super excited to meet a lot of uh, like-minded Southern socialists. 
I had some great discussions with comrades from Atlanta branch on running a podcast uh, and some great post-meeting beers with folks from uh, branches in Virginia, Florida, and Missouri, among others. If if I missed your branch, I am sorry. Uh, I, the notes I took were a little sloppy, um, but uh, feel free to contact us at info at charlestondsa.org, and we will give you a <laughs> shout out on the next one. Um, so... Nick Bennett, what were your thoughts of the meeting of the Southern Caucus and what are some key things you guys think we need to work on with regard to regional organizing and what ways could we possibly get there? Loved it. Five stars. I thought the Southern Caucus meetup was one of the highlights of the convention. Um, It's really great to just see and meet comrades in the region who are, you know, familiar with what we're doing. And it's just really cool to kind of be able to link up and be like, oh, you're close by. Let's talk. Let's share resources. You know, you've had this problem. We've had this problem. Um, It's really great. And I think that it's really promising for us to kind of get together and think about ourselves as a, as a unit. I think regional organizing, it came up in the convention a bunch and there were some resolutions and some bylaw changes that would have put more emphasis on regional organizing and they didn't pass which you know we didn't get into that maybe you know part two please don't let's not do that (laughs) (laughs) but i think it's really important that you know people in various geographic areas get together and, and talk so like the south is you know the gulf coast and the atlantic southern coast are extremely prone to to hurricanes Mm -hmm. and we have some dsa chapters in these areas that are that are vulnerable and you know us getting together preemptively and saying, hey, look, let's talk about how we can share resources. Let's talk about how we can share information. Let's talk about how we can share training. Maybe we can all get together and and have an event together. Um, or, you know, create a caravan of resources to an impacted area like the West Virginia coal miners right now. Yep. Um, I think that's really, really powerful. And I think it's something that is really... Um, you know, that that really comes from the bottom up. And I think that's what the Southern Caucus is looking like. I mean, we can go into a little bit more depth about what the Southern Caucus is, you know, off air and everything. But I think that us getting together on a regional scale and communicating and sharing resources is super important and really, really powerful. Absolutely. All right. So uh, that about does it on our 2019 National uh, DSA Convention Roundup. It was a lot of work, a lot of ups, a lot of downs, and uh, definitely not without its share of frustrations. Um, But I left feeling pretty optimistic. I'm excited to see where DSA goes within the next two years. I mean, we're at a point, I think, where there's a lot of potential to be a force for social justice, uh, for economic and political democracy, and for positive change, not just within our own communities here in the South, but around the country and maybe someday around the world. Um, I believe that we can succeed because we must. There are no other options. So Nick Bennett, any final thoughts? Solidarity forever. No, no. Yolidarity forever. Yolidarity forever. Yeah. Hell yeah. That's it. Thanks, guys. Uh, I'm CJ Bones here with Bennett and Nick of Charleston DSA. Uh, until next convention, Yolidarity forever. Yolidarity. Woo woo. Stand up, all victims of oppression, for the tyrants.
hatred nor walls of stone. Come greed the dawn and stand aside us. We'll live together or we'll die alone. In our world, poisoned by exploitation, those who will take on they must give and end the vanity of nations. We hope one earth on which to the final